All right, good morning, everyone. I, I apologize in advance if I seem a little tired. I've only been doing a few things. Um, but before we get started with the sermon, I actually do have an awkward thing for my youth. So if any of the students are in the room right now who actually were at camp with me last week, can you guys please stand? I'm looking at some of you. Yeah, I see you. Um, these young people were just amazing this past week. I just want to tell you, like, it's, it was an amazing time. You guys can sit. I'm not having to come up here and talk because that's just really hard for people. Um, but I will say that if you get a chance to see them and hear about what they experienced this week, that'd be great for you to do. Um, almost every day I was telling them how proud I was of them because I didn't have to go to the hospital once. Um, <laughs> believe me, that was a big deal. <laughs> like, we didn't have any issues at all with our students, which was an amazing thing. Um, but also, I can see God moving in their lives. Um, and it was just an honor to be there with them. Um, so I just want to make sure that I, I recognize that as we get started here, um, because today we are going to continue looking in Daniel. And I will tell you, um, I have been struggling and wrestling with preaching this sermon today um, because it is, not a, it is not an easy message. Daniel chapter 9, if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. Daniel chapter 9 is not an easy part of Scripture, um, but it is in God's Word, and it's important for us. Um, so as we get started, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we are going to spend some time today just seeing what God has for us in His Word. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that you will fill me and use me today to present your Word to your people. God, I don't even know how many times in the last month or so I've told you that I really don't want to preach today. <laughs> I really don't want to preach this. Um, because it's, it's not fun. But God, I'm thankful that it's not my will, it's your will. I'm thankful that you would choose to use a man like me to preach your word to your people. And God, I pray today that we will hear from you by the power of your spirit so that we can go out and live for you and your glory in this world. God, be glorified, please, in the preaching and hearing of your word today. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, so... We are in Daniel chapter 9. We've been working through the book of Daniel, right, for a little while now. Let's see, is there a bit? Oh, yeah. Thank you. You guys advanced the slide for me. Um, and I want to start out just by reading uh, these first 19 verses here in the book of Daniel. Um, if you have not been following along, please do go back and follow along and see where we've been on this journey. Um, it is a wonderful, amazing thing that I get to serve with these other men of God who value his word. Um, and you really should hear what all has been said so far in Daniel. I'm picking up in Daniel chapter 9. This is what it says here. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And then this is Daniel speaking. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, fathers, and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far in all the countries where you have banished them because of this disloyalty they have shown toward you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, and our fathers. 
because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the Lord our God by following his instructions that he set before us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He has carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a disaster that is so great that nothing like what has been done in Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord, our God, by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all he has done, but we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is this day, we have sinned, we have acted wickedly. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, our God, Hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel is engaged in a long prayer of repentance. And really, that's what we're going to be talking about today is this idea of repenting for sin. And notice what Daniel's praying about is not sin that he himself has necessarily committed, even though he says we have done this thing, right? Because he was taken off into captivity with all these other people, but he wasn't a leader in Israel. He was a boy. He wasn't a grown man. He was just somebody involved in a society and sin brought it down. Here he is repenting of sin and saying, we have done this thing. And you could say, but Daniel, you never did this. And Daniel's like, no, no, I did this too, because I'm a member of these people. I am one of them, and this is our sin. And so he starts out with this, this idea of repentance. He's begging for forgiveness, but notice where his forgiveness starts. See, God's forgiveness and deliverance are only rightfully requested after we have repented. I had this opportunity recently. My wife and I, we were off in, in Poland. I'm getting to share the gospel with, with Frankie and Pam, which was an amazing time. And, and even being with the kids at Ed Camp, there were times where the gospel was shared. And, and far too often what we find in society is that people want to share the good news of Jesus without the reality of the need for repentance of sin. There, there is no good news of Christ without the reality of our sin. You can't accept him as your Lord and Savior without first repenting of your sin. Because if not, what is he saving you from? What's the point of salvation if there isn't sin in there that I need to be saved from, I need to be delivered from, I need someone to deal with the consequences of my sin? It starts with repentance. But so often we go to people and say, hey, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? And we leave it at that. And they're like, yeah, sure. Sounds good to me. Good to go to heaven. Why not? And never do we deal with the fact that you can't really receive it without repenting. Well, I was in Poland. They were talking about how this, this word repent is actually hard for them um, when they're ministering in Polish because the word itself, it, it's, it, it doesn't really translate very well. And it's been misused by the Catholic Church for so long that when they're sharing the gospel, they have a difficult time with it. But they wrestle and struggle with it as missionaries because they say, how can I share the gospel if they don't understand 
this idea of repentance. So though it's hard, I'm going to just sit there and spend five minutes trying to explain a term, because if not, they're not going to understand the gospel. We've got to start with repentance. You can't just go straight to Jesus crucified and risen again. You've got to start with our sin. And so it starts there. And then Daniel comes, goes on, actually, and I'm not going to read it all to you, but in, going on in verse 20, you have this, this, this time where he's praying, and, and the angel Gabriel shows up and says, hey, Daniel, I got an explanation for you. Here's how it's going to work. You got these 70 weeks, and, and in the course of the time, as this all unfolds, you're going to have, somebody's going to come, the temple's going to be rebuilt, and salvation will be brought to your people, and then there'll be some more desolation that will happen, all these things, and people have torn apart the last half of Daniel chapter 9 to try and have all kinds of ideas about how the end times work and Jesus' ministry. And and what they're doing is they're kind of losing the point. Because when Gabriel came to Daniel, what he said to Daniel had to make sense for Daniel and the people of Israel in that day. This is an important thing. When you're reading scripture or listening to somebody teach scripture, you have to ask yourself, does your explanation actually make sense to the people who first heard it? Because if it doesn't, you might be misusing God's word. See, any explanation we give for understanding a prophecy or a declaration from God's word, it has to make sense to the people who received it because God's not going to give them a word that makes no sense to them. And so when we look at this message of, of Gabriel, uh, this, this, this idea that is, that is hammered down to them is, first of all, repentance is foundational, not optional. See, it's because he built a foundation of repentance that God could come and say, hey, I've got an answer for you. You have built the right foundation. Yes, you read the prophets. Yes, you understand all these things you're doing. I mean, Daniel could have sat back and said, well, it says 70 weeks. There we go. That solves that one. 70 must mean something. I mean, I'm Daniel. I have interpretation of visions and dreams. I can figure this out. There's no need to deal with the sin. It's going to come to an end. God said 70. Cool. Let's wait it out. But no, Daniel built that right foundation. And because he had that foundation of repentance, God was able to say, all right, since you're doing things the right way, let's talk about what's going to happen next. So the question is, what is the purpose then? If it's not to give some convoluted understanding of the unfolding of the gospel or the ministry of Christ Jesus, what is the real purpose of Gabriel's message? And it's really simple. There's actually just two big ideas. First of all, it's to encourage, to encourage Daniel and his contemporaries. Daniel was wrestling and struggling. Daniel said, we have sinned. We deserve this. There are things going on. And God sent a word saying, hey, I want to encourage you. The prophecy is true. You do understand I hear your repenting prayer. I'm going to save you. God said, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. But because it is prophecy, there is something that also applies to us. An example that we see, really, because the the second thing it does is it instructs the future saints in the kingdom. See, first, it's encouraging the people in that moment saying, yes, you have sinned, but I still forgive. I still heal. I still save. And at the same time, in the future, when others read about this time, read about what's going on, they are going to be instructed on how to deal with God's judgment in their life, in their community, in their nation, in their own heart. They're going to see that the foundation comes through repentance. They're going to see that you find the answer from God and God alone. They're going to see who I really am. This is going to instruct them in how to live kingdom lives. That's what Gabriel's really bringing us. And this is not a new thought. In fact, if you guys are familiar at all with your Awana memory verses, right? We've got a lot of those that we memorize in Awana. Um, 2 Timothy 3, 16 17, right? All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. We are going to talk about some very difficult things today. We're going to talk about some difficult things in God's word. But it's all good. And it's all good for us. Going back to again, when I was in, in, in Poland, I was sharing with a guy. Actually, this is, uh, his name's Christoph. Brandon speaks with him many Friday mornings. Um, I don't know if you guys knew that, but Brandon will spend his Friday mornings on a Zoom call with this guy over in Poland, a devout atheist, helping him learn English and trying to just minister to him the gospel. And so I got a chance to meet him myself in Poland. Made him rather angry. I did. Um, because I was answering his questions about why it is that I would love and serve God. Um, because I do. And I was sharing with him about the story in uh, Judges 19. Very difficult story. Um, all kinds of horrible things happen in that story. And Christoph and his girlfriend looked like, well, how can you, what, what's the point? Why would you serve a God like this, who has scripture like that? And it's like, well, it's in there because it reminds us of just how bad we are without God. He's not lying. He's not covering up. He's going to be honest about it. Why wouldn't I serve a God who recognizes just how messed up I am without him? They got angry at that, but I mean, <laughs> the important thing is realizing that, yes, it's all good. We need to read it. We need to spend time with even the tough parts of God's word because it's all there for our good. And so that's Daniel in general, right? What's Daniel 9 for us today? We said it's about instructing. What is the instruction that God has for us today as Edgewood, as Christians, as people of God, as American citizens, all these things? What does it mean for us today? Um, I had this idea in my mind, you might have heard this about this idea of a definition of insanity, um, where they say that insanity is when you do the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. Have you heard that? Well, we have some insane things in our society. That might shock you, but not everything in the world today behaves in a sane manner. Some things are a little insane. Um, And one of the things that I want to focus in on is the insanity of some of the sin we have as a country. See, there are sins... We can't seem to get past this country. The solution is not to keep doing the same thing. The solution is to do God's thing. Now, the same thing is to think we can elect politicians and save us. The same thing is to think, well, if I get out there and I protest, it will solve problems. Or I I know maybe if I raise up my kids a certain kind of way or send them to a certain school, if I get a certain kind of education myself or or if I watch certain TV shows or, or certain news channels, if I do these things, it will solve the problem. Yet we've seen generation after generation after generation in the same mess in this country because we keep doing the wrong thing. Daniel shows us, God shows us in his word that there's a simple way of dealing with this. That God's solution is not education. And I say this is a guy who loves to learn and and read. God's solution is not getting organized. God's solution is not learning more about the people around us. No, God's solution is real repentance. How do we deal with the sin in society? It's not with programs. It's not with politicians. It's not even necessarily with prayer meetings and, and churches. It's with real repentance. That's what we need. If we do that, then we can have progress. So what is repentance? One of my professors at seminary, he has this good definition. I wanted to use it today. I can read it to you. You can't can't see it. He said this. He said, repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that results in a change of action. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that results in a change of action. 
It's not just that I change my mind, but in the changing of my mind, it changes my heart. But it doesn't just stop there. I then start to do something different. I don't just do different. First, I have to feel different. I don't just feel different. First, I have to think different. But it's all of those things together. Um, Dr. Bowery, this is just amazing. I'll say it again for you guys if you write it down. A change of mind that leads to a change of heart that results in a change of action. And so when I talk about these things we have in society, right? I mean, let's be honest. We got... We want to repent. Okay, we need to repent of greed. We need to repent of sexual immorality. We need to repent of envy, hatred, laziness, and so many other sins in the church. Because it's not just in the country, it's in the church. You know this, you see this. We, we see leaders who call themselves pastors. And they're just as broken and messed up and no good as the worst politician you could think of. It's in the church. But the one thing in particular that we're going to talk about today the one thing particularly we need to repent of, not just as a country, but as Christians, is the sin of racism. So I don't know if you guys realize this, but uh, tomorrow actually is, is a holiday. Um, they've recently made it a federal holiday of, of Juneteenth. It's a time of the year where we're supposed to think about as a nation the reality of the end of slavery. Um, that's what we're in. And Again, as I'm sitting there, and Michael was there too, we're sitting there, we're plotting out, you know, who's going to preach when. And we're like, oh, okay, Father's Day, we're preaching on repentance. That's a weird thing to preach on on Father's Day, but whatever. All right, Daniel 9 it is. And all right, I'm, I'm preaching on this. Wait a minute. This is when? And I wrestled with this. I'm like, God, I don't want to do a sermon about this. But the reason why it is that we men stand before you and preach his word is not because we want to talk about what we want to talk about. I can do that at home. I can do that with my friends. We do that all week long in the office. <laughs> That's not what this is about. We are here as men who minister to you God's word to preach what God tells us to preach to you. And so God wants me to share with you and talk about this idea of sin, of racism. I got this book that I was reading, this guy, uh, Kosuke Koyama. He actually survived um, one of the atomic bombs that we dropped in Japan. Theologian. He says, to be human is different from to be animal. It is different from to be thing. Racism is a devastating insult to human dignity. It does not attack the periphery. It injures the center of man. It desacralizes that which is sacred in him. It is a blasphemy against the deepest level of human identity. Man is made from soil and he will become soil again. Man is humble in his beginning and in his end. This is, however, a half story about man. Man began to live, according to the Bible, by the breath of God. He is inspired by God. Racism insults this inspiration of God, which is in man. The presence of the breath of God is the source of man's human dignity. What Koyama said is that racism is a devastating insult to human dignity because we are made in the image of God. And any and everything that anybody ever does to say you are less than an image bearer of God is evil. It's wrong. It's a sin against God himself. We've been working through, right? We've done Genesis even this year, right? So we've been working through all these, these scriptures and seeing this foundation, and he's hitting it dead on. What makes me me is because I bear the image of God. That's what makes a human being a human being. And he hammers it home that the idea of racism is, is not a problem because I'm denying somebody, you know, the right to a job or, or money or resources. No, the problem is, well, God is real and he made them. The problem is 
Well, God. Not politics, not rights, not privileges, but the image of God. That's the real question we're wrestling with when we wrestle with racism. Frederick Douglass uh, had this speech that he was uh, set up to give on the 4th of July in 1852. There was some, some complications happened, so he didn't give it till the 5th of July, 1852. If you get a chance, you should go and read it. It's an amazing speech of, of a man who loved Jesus, talking to other people who loved Jesus about this issue of a national sin. And, and a portion of what he said in that speech, he said, the American church is guilty when viewed in connection with what it is doing to uphold slavery. But it is superlatively guilty when viewed in connection with its ability to abolish slavery. The sin of which it is guilty is one of omission as well as of commission. Let the religious press, the pulpit, the Sunday school, the conference meeting, the great ecclesiastical missionary Bible and tract associations of the land array their immense powers against slavery and slaveholding. And the whole system of crime and blood would be scattered to the winds. And that they do not do this involves them in the most awful responsibility of which the mind can conceive. Fellow citizens, I will not enlarge further on your national inconsistencies. The existence of slavery in this country brands your republicanism as a sham, your humanity as a base pretense, and your Christianity as a lie. This is the sin we carry as the church. Because the truth is, he's saying this to his contemporaries as a Christian. He's like, listen, fellow Christians, what are we really doing about this? What are we really doing to stop this? Not only are we not stopping it, we could actually stop it. If we just got together and actually said, as people who love Jesus no more, it would come to an end. But we don't. We put up with it. And you're thinking right now, well, okay, come on, that's great, that's racism. I promise you there were probably sins in your community, if not your very home, that you're doing the same thing with right now. That you may not be committing the sin, but you're not standing up against the sin either. You're just letting it happen. When we were in Poland, my wife and I, we, we took a, a, a day, we went to visit Auschwitz-Birkenau, um, the, the concentration camp, what's left behind of these concentration camps. And our tour guide, um, she was saying that her grandparents actually lived right next door to Auschwitz while they were going through the process of murdering all of those Jewish people. They lived right next door to it. And here she is as a, as a tour guide for it. And I asked, I told her, I said, well, I, thank you for doing this because it has to be hard for you. I mean, your grandparents, literally, they didn't do anything about it. She's like, yeah, my grandparents don't talk about it. She's like, I, I can't imagine what it was like for them living next to that. But my thing was that I can't imagine how much courage it takes for her to stand up and to still share the history of the pain of that community, knowing that my family was right there and did nothing. My dad was born in that house. That's what she told me. They sat right there next to it the whole time. But she's gonna do her part to make sure that people know what really happened. That was a sacrifice for her. I'm grateful for her. Because it's hard to sit there and admit the sins of our own families, of our own communities, of ourselves. But that's her life. And what Douglas is talking about is he's saying, you know what? We didn't stand up. But it didn't end with, with slavery. It, slavery ended, Jim Crow started out, and it was a whole nother hard time. One of my heroes in the faith actually around the, the, the World War II time, uh, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was an amazing, amazing man of God. He ended up dying in a concentration camp, not in Auschwitz-Birken now, but he ended up dying in a concentration camp. A German theologian who went back to Germany to stand up against Hitler and say, you know what, right is right and wrong is wrong. The gospel is the gospel. Um, what's really interesting as you study his life is that part of what shaped his theology was that he spent a little bit of time in Harlem being shaped by black theology that helped to encourage him to go back to Nazi Germany and stand up to Hitler and eventually die. 
But Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this to say about this idea of confession. He says that in confession, there takes place a breakthrough to community, to cross, to new life, and to assurance. Bonhoeffer says that we have to confess if we're going to have any breaking through, any, any newness of life. Because he goes on and talks about how sin loves to just keep us isolated. Sin loves to keep us separate from the other members of our community. He says, sin wants to be alone with people, but sin that has been spoken and confessed has lost all of its power. Maybe you've not been there. I know I've been there where you have a sin that you're struggling with and you're like, I don't want to tell anybody. I feel so bad about it. And the funny thing is that it's in your silence about that sin that you end up even more alone. You think that if I don't tell anybody, they'll accept me. But instead, that not telling further isolates you. It's like, that's what's going on in society. That as Christians especially, we should be people who are repenting, who are confessing. But when we don't confess, it builds these walls of isolation within our communities. And the devil wins because he wants us isolated. And the way we break that power is by confessing our sins. I mean, realize, we say Christ died for our sins. We're forgiven. So why can't we confess it? I, I understand somebody who doesn't know Jesus being afraid of confessing because, I mean, yeah, bad stuff could happen. But the worst you can do is kill me. I'm going to heaven. I'm forgiven. So why won't I confess my sin? Why can't I confess? We should be confessing our sin because we're forgiven of our sin. I guess that might be the question. Do you really believe you're forgiven of your sin? But I guess that's another sermon for another day. Because one of the things that I encounter as I share with people about this issue of, of, of racism and, and prejudice and sin within the community of believers, sometimes I encounter individuals who say, well, well, see, the problem, Kamar, we just need to stop talking about it. If we just stop talking about it, it would go away. It's like, but that's literally what we're seeing is not how you deal with sin according to Scripture. It's not to ignore it, not to stop talking about it. In fact, when we stop talking about it, Something worse happens. We forget about it. This other guy, he's a pastor in, in, in Silicon Valley. Actually, I read a book. He's called Analog Christian, which you can imagine Brandon's a fan of anytime somebody wants to give up anything digital. So he was cheering me on and reading it. Um, but this guy, he's actually pastors in Silicon Valley, and he's Analog Christian, Analog Church. These are his big things that he's written about. Um, and he had this to say about the, the risk of forgetfulness, because he said the real issue with social media is that it isolates us. And then in isolating us, we forget important things about what it means to exist, that we need to not forget. We need to remember because that's part of our community. In fact, we serve a God who we say died and rose again 2000 years ago. We are people of memory. We're not people of forgetting. We are people of history, not of erasing history. And this is what he says. He says, collective forgetfulness leads to communal idolatry. Forgetfulness, forgetfulness erodes faithfulness. That when we as a community start to forget the past, we start worshiping something that is not real at all. Because we don't even know what real is anymore. We see this actually in Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians 2, 11 through 14, we have this encounter that's recalled by Paul when he had to deal with sin in the life of Peter. This is what he says. But when Cephas, which is another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, 
If you who are a Jew like all, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? What Paul is saying is that, look, for a second there, Peter forgot who he was. For a second there, Peter forgot what it meant to be a Christian. And as a result, he started worshiping some old Jewish ways of living life because he forgot. Even the apostle Peter can forget. So yeah, we can forget too. And the real problem is that if we forget, we might lead others astray, lead them away into a place of idolatry that is just shameful and especially not right for God's people. And so I'm gonna make it really specific for a second here. And I wanna talk about the difficult truth about our sin in our community. Because it's not just about the sin of the nation or the sin of the church. Let's talk about the sin of Hopkinsville. I have a, a book that, that I've had the privilege of reading through with some other pastors, um, Brandon and myself. Um, definitely recommend you guys get it if you haven't. It's called Been Coming Through Some Hard Times. This is an interesting thing where somebody actually, a researcher not from Hoptown, said, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to research the history of Hopkinsville. And this is just an academic discourse of what is the factual data about the history of this town and how they have dealt with race. Something interesting about this place, do you realize that Hopkinsville has the largest percentage of black people in the entire state of Kentucky? No place else in Kentucky has as many black people per capita as Hopkinsville. That's, that's just the truth of it. And what he traces is that's because Christian County apparently was like the place to be if you were a slave owner back in slavery. The rest of Kentucky had much lower slave ownership rates, but not Christian County. That was the thing here because of tobacco. I mean, you guys know that's our soil is great for it. Whether you believe in using it or not doesn't change the fact that our soil is good at growing tobacco. Some of the best in the entire world. Because of that, we have plantations here. We had wealth here. We had slavery here. And we have descendants of slavery here. That's the reality of it. That's the truth of it. There are some things they talked about in here that were really hard. One of which had to do with this rumors of a slave uprising in 1856. Um, what it was was that there were rumors going around that the slaves might be trying to be free. Um, there was no evidence for it. There was rumors of it. Um, and as a result, everybody was in uproar in the community. This went all the way down to, to Clarksville, um, where everybody was just concerned. Everybody was scared. Everybody was talking about it. And an article that was written um, actually in a newspaper in, in Clarksville, it was, uh, this is what it said. I'm just going to read you a small portion of it. This is... Quote from newspaper, 1856. Let a terrible example be made in every neighborhood where the crime can be established and if necessary. The crime, by the way, is the crime of wanting to be free. And if necessary, let every tree in the country bend with Negro meat. Temporizing in such cases as this is utter madness. We must strike terror and make a lasting impression, for only in such a course can we find guarantees of future security. This is December 3rd, 1856. I was getting these notes together, I realized that's my son's birthday. And this is what they're saying because of rumors. And you can say, well, that, that was the newspaper in Clarksville, Kamar. Yeah, it got worse, actually, because as a result of these rumors here in Hopkinsville, they rounded up a bunch of men um, who they accused of being guilty of the crime of desiring their freedom. They beat them, they killed them, they removed their heads from their bodies. And the historical record tells us they're right outside here on Katie's Road, leading out, town, out of Hopkinsville to Katie's. They lined the road with their heads. 
I have a hard time coming to church without remembering that now. We may not have been here, but that's the history of our place. Just think about that. That not that long ago, right here in front of where we worship God, other people who claim to worship God lined the road with heads because they desired to be free. That's the history of our sin in our place. Because we wrestle with this as, as pastors of the community, we talk about it because we realize that these people, they were church folk. These were deacons and pastors, Sunday school teachers, elders, upstanding citizens. And their pastors did nothing. The congregation did nothing. And it didn't end there. You get past slavery. Um, you have recording of lynching that took place in 1909 here in town. And uh, it's recorded in Kentucky New Era. And it talks about how peaceful the crowd was, how orderly they were, that they made it a point to be civilized and how they just hang this guy. And the newspaper records that his body stayed up there for a couple more days just to make sure everybody learned their lesson. But we go beyond Jim Crow era. You say, well, things got better, um, right? They got better. This guy was interviewing people in 2013. And he says, more than 40 years after the momentous changes in the 1960s, a local white official confided to me on condition of anonymity and with some embarrassment that in Hopkinsville, every decision made by city government is in one way or another about race. I was in a meeting a few weeks back. And we were talking about some things that are changing in the community here. Funding that's not going to go to certain neighborhoods and is instead going to be going to other neighborhoods. There are people in this church who are weeping because of the reality of this. And somebody spoke up and they said, well, we know why they're doing this. This is 2023. They're doing this because they don't care about our neighborhoods. Because it's just black people there. So they're going to put all the money into the white neighborhoods, but not into ours. And people of Edgewood were weeping together as we sat there and said, why does this continue? Why is this still a thing? It's still a thing because we're not dealing with it. See, the solution is not ignoring, which is what a lot of people tell you, just ignore it and it'll go away. Solution is not division and fighting. A lot of people say, well, let's just, let's just fight about this. I'm right and you're wrong and I'll beat you up over it. Solution starts with God's people repenting of our sin. It breaks my heart when I look out there in the world and I see non-Christians trying to lead the way, trying to establish unity, and we're sitting on the sidelines doing nothing because we're the ones who are supposed to be leading the way. Again, not with political agendas, but with open, heartfelt, sincere repentance because we're forgiven. We have nothing to be afraid of by repenting. We're forgiven. But as long as we sit back and we're not leading the conversation with our repentant prayers, the world is gonna choose all these other things, all these other solutions because we are repenting. And I, gotta, I wanna make sure I am very clear on this one. When I say we, I do mean we. Because you guys may not realize this, but, but my ancestors were slave owners too. I'm 30% European DNA and I know where that DNA came from. Family stories are very clear. 
I know which ones of my grandmothers and great-grandmothers conceived against their will. And those men's blood are in my veins too. That's my ancestry. This is our sin. And so we repent of it. But not just because it's a political idea or Kumar saying this. No, we got to see it's in God's word. You might remember 2 Chronicles 7, 13, 15, right? If I shut the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshoppers to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, and my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. My eyes will now be open and my ears attentive to prayers from this place. Think about what happened when Elijah said, okay, no more rain because Ahab is an evil king. And you can say, well, that's not fair. They didn't all sin. In fact, we know the Bible says that God says he had at least 7,000 people he preserved who were not guilty of that sin. And yet those 7,000 people also lived through famine, lived through drought. Those who were included in the need for national repentance. You can sit here and say all you want to. That's not my sin, Kamar. The Bible still says that we are to repent. Because that's what Daniel did. That's the example he set for us. That's the example we see over and over again in Scripture that we are supposed to do, that we need to repent. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 32, 18. You show faithful love to thousands, but, love, but, lay, but lay the father's iniquity on their son's laps after them. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of armies. That same prophecy that Daniel read, Reminding him that I put these sins in your lap. Now, now elsewhere in Ezekiel, I'll put it up here for you guys. In Ezekiel 18.20, it talks about, actually the entire chapter of 18 talks about the fact that, that God will not punish a father for the sins of the son or a son for the sins of the father. And it says it right here. Uh, the person who sins is the one who will die. A son won't suffer punishment for the father's iniquity and a father won't suffer punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous person will be on him and the wickedness of the wicked person will be on him. And so you say, well, there's this tension in Kamar. I don't understand. If, if, the, if he's saying he's going to lay the iniquity of the father on the son, but now he's saying he's not, well, this doesn't make any sense. And I'll say, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Because what he's saying is that I'm not putting the sin on the son because the father sinned. I'm putting the sin on the son because the son continues in the father's sin. Because he visits the sin because we continue in sin. We continue in sin. How do we continue in sin? Why is Walmart more integrated than our churches? Try and tell me we don't continue in sin when our pews are more segregated than our stores, than our schools, than just about any place else in this country. Yes, we continue in this sin. And so, again, I go back to what Daniel says. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, and our fathers because we have sinned against you. Now, I wanna say something for a second. I, and I said this, I think it was my, one of my first sermons here preaching, and I, and I still mean it. I do not believe for a second that there is ever a history in Edgewood Church where there was a policy that says black people can't be at Edgewood. I don't believe that for a second, I don't. But it doesn't change the fact that we are where we are. It doesn't change the fact that there's a reason why it is that Edgewood looks like it does, and Second Baptist looks like it does, and Virginia Street looks like it does. 
Because we, as God's people, we need to repent. We need to repent. I am thankful that I get to gather together with a group of men on a regular basis um, of different ethnic backgrounds who are pastoring in the same community, and we are all devoted to saying we need to lead better. And that's actually why we read this book as a group of pastors, because we said we need to know more about the history of this place because we need to lead better. Because it's not right. It's not right. We need to repent if we ever hope to break the cycle. The world's watching us. And the world's talking real bad about us. Because again, they look out there and they see all kinds of what they call unity. I don't believe it's real unity for a second. I believe unity can only be found in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. I believe that very much so. It doesn't change the fact that they look at us and they say, I don't see that though, Kamar. I don't see that so-called Christian. I see division. And what we need to do is stop making excuses. If you're a parent, you know how that feels when you call a kid out on their, on their mistakes and they're like, but see, but see, but see. No. We need to instead repent. Repent. God loves us. God saves us. God will hear us and heal us. We need to repent. And so as we close today, I want to invite you guys, if you want, um, to join me up front and pray for repentance. You can stay in your seats because you're more comfortable with that. You can come up and pray with me. But I know I need to repent because it's my sin too. We need to repent because it is our sin too. God will hear it, but we have to do it.